Merry Christmas. I hope you've had a wonderful just Christmas season, being able to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and his life and the life that he gives. But we're past Christmas now, aren't we? It's December 26th, and so the celebrations and the Christmas songs and the parties and the feasts, well, they're all coming to an end. The new year is quickly approaching, and we'll drift back into our normal, everyday grind of life. We'll wait another 364 days for Christmas to come again. Because after all, we all know that the celebrations, the Christmas songs, the feasts, they can't go on forever. You can't just keep celebrating and singing and, and feasting. They have to come to an end. Or do they? Remember, our question has never been, when is Christmas coming? But where is Christmas going? And it's going to a place of forever. That's what John tells us in his revelation. Let's check it out together this morning. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So John is writing what he sees. It's a revelation that Rome never imagined would get out. As I've told you before, by this time, John is old. He's a, he's a pastor and he's also a bishop over several churches. He's so popular that Rome doesn't want to execute him. And he's so powerful that Rome can't simply ignore him. So they do the thing that they think is going to hurt him most. They exile him off to be forgotten about on a tiny piece of rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's a rock today even hard to get to, the island of Patmos. And they never thought that John could possibly get his revelation out. But somehow he does, and what John sees is fascinating. Because he sees that that little baby that was born in the most humble of circumstances so long ago, that little baby that was born in a small town in a dirty cave, who was lying in a feeding trough, who was wrapped in death clothes, that that little baby would grow up 
to give humanity her future back, that he would make all things new, that he could take the will of God and make it a reality. This is who Jesus would grow up to be. And so John sees this and he's relaying this to the church. And you know, the thing that makes all of this so important is that what Jesus, what John sees is fascinating. He, he sees that uh, there is one who is worthy. And so there's singing. He sees the celebration of saints throwing their crowns down before him. He sees the feasting because the church is there and Jesus has secured his bride. He sees it all. And the thing that makes it so special is the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is there with this whole thing. We're celebrating, we're singing, we're rejoicing together with Jesus. You know, I hope you had a good Christmas celebration this year with family and friends. Because the Christmas celebration, the singing, the feasting, shouldn't be done alone, should it? There's something inside each of us that knows, hey, this has got to be done together. So we invite people, we invite our, our family to gather together. We invite friends over because Christmas is to be enjoyed together. There's, so much, there's something almost lonely at the end of a Christmas celebration, isn't there? I mean, after all the festivities have died down and you've had the chance to kind of take a breath, and all that you're left with is maybe the mess and a memory that there's a bit of sadness because the family has said goodbye. The friends have gone home. There's going to be a wait until you ever see them again. And that's the thing about Christmas, isn't it? There's also this reminder that there's these empty seats at the table. There's been loss, and so there's grandparents, there's parents, there's a spouse, there's a brother, a sister, sometimes even a child, someone who's not there and won't be there again, and you want them desperately to be there. And so John, he sees this, celebra this, ce this celebrating, he sees the singing, he sees the feasting, and what makes it all so special is Jesus. He's there. He's, he's present, not just spiritually, but he's there physically, the physical embodiment of God right there. He's there. And so knowing that, yeah, we come to worship, we come to celebrate, we come to sing, we come to feast together. You know, last week we looked at Revelation 19. If you were with us, did you find it interesting that before the final battle had even occurred, before this battle of Armageddon where the beast and the false prophet and all those who oppose Jesus are, are captured, that the celebration had already started, that we were already there in our robes and then the, the celebration, the singing, it had already started even before the final battle had happened. Does that seem at all backwards to you? I mean, most of the time, the first thing that happens when there's this conquering army or something is well, you conquer the people. There's the last battle has been waged and you get those who you've conquered and you put some kind of punishment on them. There, there's something that you do to them. And after that, they've received their consequence, their, their punishment. Well, then you can celebrate. You bring all those who oppose you and you pronounce the sentence. And then you celebrate with all those who are on your side. Then the celebration commences. But here, here, the celebration starts before the judgment. Why? Well, one of the reasons is just how reluctant Jesus is to pronounce judgment. How hard it is for Jesus to get to that place where he says, 
There's going to be no more chances. See, one of the good things about our God is he's a very patient God. He's called long-suffering. For you and me, it's not often that way, is it? Somebody wrongs us, and we, hey, we want some justice. We want some consequences right away. That's the first thing we want to see. We've been wrong. There's been some kind of injustice. Well, now there needs to be justice, and then we can celebrate. Then our hearts can be at ease. Then everything will be all right. You know, there's a point in the American church in the not-too-distant past where hell was this big deal, and we talk a lot about it. We'd make sure that you knew how hot hell was and how awful it was. And we'd hold you like a marshmallow over the fire and just get you toasty a little bit to scare you so that you would know just how terrifying this place was so that you would run to heaven to avoid hell. Here's the thing. The only thing you need to know about hell is this. God's not present there. God is totally absent. He's not there. See, understand this. The things that makes hell so bad is not the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they prove that to us. The thing that makes hell so bad is the absence of God. And once you realize that you are totally and utterly alone, oh, in that moment, you're weeping. There's gnashing of teeth. You'd be begging for a lake of fire that would consume you so that it could all be over. It's the absence of God. See, it's the together that makes all the difference. It's the together that makes life come alive. And so John, when he sees Jesus in this picture here in Revelation 21, he sees Jesus welcoming his family. And what a celebration it is. It's described and pictured as this great wedding. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And coming out of heaven is this new city, Jerusalem. And we're, the, we're there. We're part of this city. And so we're the bride that's adorned and dressed and presented to the groom. And that, that's us. See, it's being together that makes all the difference. The bride and the groom together. It's no good if you're apart. And you know, you ask almost any husband, hey, what was your favorite moment of the wedding day? What do you remember most? And most, they'll tell you about that moment when they were standing at the edge of the stage and they're next to the pastor and they're looking out down the aisle and they see the doors open and then there she is, his bride next to her dad, and, and just how brilliant and how radiant and how shining and how stunning she looks. Oh, there's something about that moment that you just never forget. It's just etched in your mind. It's such a special moment. And this is that moment, John tells us, that we're presented as the new bride. And John wants us to know that we're going to have a place that, yeah, we're a bride, we're a bride with a place. That this, this new heaven, this new earth, this is what Jesus has prepared for us. As he, got, as he went in that preparation stage, this is it. That we're not going to be just kind of floating around as spiritual beings in the clouds or something. But we're part of a holy city coming out of heaven down to earth. God's will on earth will be done as it is in heaven. The prayer will be answered. There's a oneness to it all, and we're a part of it. It's everything we've been promised. It's that place that Jesus went ahead to prepare for us. It's that place that eye hasn't seen, that ear hasn't heard, that it hasn't even entered into the heart of man what Jesus is doing. It's that place, and here we are experiencing all of it, and we're adorned, and we're presented 
as special in that place because we have an eternal home. And the place, it's incredible. But as incredible as it is, our attention is then directed to something even more spectacular because we hear this loud voice that comes from the throne saying that the place of God is now to dwell with man. That's what makes it so special. That's what makes heaven so special. It's what makes heaven heaven, that God is going to dwell with us. See, being in that new heaven and that new earth without Jesus would, like a, would be like a bride going on our honeymoon without her husband. It, it, it would be like a, a husband who works so hard to prepare this new house and he builds this nice home. And then on moving day, as they prepare to move in together, the husband says, you know what? I'm actually going to go live in a different country. See, there's something so empty about all of that. There would be no joy for the bride in this golden city, as spectacular as it is, if the groom isn't there. The thing that makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. And now, as, as you look through the scriptures, God, he's given us an interesting list, really, of his dwelling places, of the places that he's lived. He, first, he tells us that he just kind of walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then in, in Israel, that he, he was in tabernacles, he tented among them, and his, his uh, glory was allowed to fill the holy of holies. Then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus tented among us and tabernacled among us. And then now, in this day and age, we live in a period where God says that he does not live in temples made by human hands, but that he resides in the bodies of those he redeems. It is literal, but at the same time, it's invisible. We worship him who we cannot see. But all of that changes here. Because we have physical access to the glory of God. Our bodies can now handle it. It's our greatest treasure, face-to-face -face fellowship with Jesus. This is heaven, the presence of Jesus together forever. It's what makes heaven, heaven. And there's this perfect unity there. We, the church, were perfectly united with uh, Jesus, all united, all one. What the church is supposed to model here on earth now gets realized perfectly in heaven. Because one thing is going to come into clear focus, <laughs> and that's this. We all have the same story. That's the truth. You and me, we all have the same story. We'll get to that place where we realize our stories are the same. I was lost, and I've been found. Oh, the details of that story, they may change from story to story, but the stories have all been the same. That I was living one way, I had this pride in my heart, this was going on, then Jesus found me, and now this is the life that he gave me. We all have the same story. And there's a family. There's a family there. There's a place where you can be known fully, and a place where you can be loved fully, because there's a father. That's the metaphor that John now gives us is the father. I know for some of you, you've had a good dad and you understand that metaphor. But for others, this metaphor can be kind of hard because you had a difficult relationship with your dad. 
You know, Ephesians 6 it used to bother me a little bit because Paul, he just spent all this time talking about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And then he talks about how fathers are supposed to relate to their children. And all he says is, don't frustrate them and teach them about Jesus. And I'm looking at that and thinking, you know, that's a pretty low bar. You can't give us a little more than that, Paul. I mean, just don't make your kids angry and tell them a little bit about the Bible. I mean, that's it. I mean, there's got to be more to it. But then, after several years as a youth pastor, I began to understand what Paul was saying. Because there's so many kids that grow up with no dads or have strained relationships with, with their dads. And the main role of a father, of a dad is to make sure that this metaphor makes sense. That's it. Just to make sure that this metaphor makes sense, that it's easy to trust that there's a father in heaven who loves them because they know the love of their dad. And you know something about the heart of a good dad? He'd fix anything if he could. You know that, don't you? That, that a good dad, he, he wants to remove any pain. He wants to wipe away any disappointment. He wants to get rid of any kind of heartache. He'd step in to protect you from making any poor decisions so there would be no regret. There would be no need for remorse. He'd desire to, to see your face just lit up with that smile that you could button behind your ears. Oh, a good dad. He, he'd make your laughter his soundtrack. This, this is the heart of a good dad to protect you from any sorrow, any, any mourning. Every dad this Christmas, that's what he really wishes he could give his children. But we can't. We can't. We don't have the power to do that. We're unable to give these kind of gifts. So a Dad's job is to make it easy to believe in a dad in heaven who can. A father who really can wipe away every tear from every eye. A father who can reverse the fall and, and pronounce that there will be no more death. I mean, it almost sounds impossible to believe that from the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that death has been this reality that we've all had to deal with and the vast implications of it all from every aspect of the animal kingdom to the very cellular structure of our bodies. But there's a father who's going to say no more death, that not even one more cell in your body will ever die. There's nothing of death in this new creation. See, a dad's job is to make it easy to believe in a, in a father who can remove any and all sorrow, who can remove any and all mourning, that there will be no more screams of injustice, no more agony, no more heartache, no more pain. <laughs> you know, Eve was promised pain at childbirth. Adam, he was promised pain as he worked in the garden. And Adam and Eve, they would soon learn the pain of losing a child losing the child at the hands of another child. And ever since, every person who's ever walked the earth, we've all known pain. We've all known heartache. Pain is just a passenger on every train. It's a compartment. It's, it's in the compartment of every sphere of life. You can't outrun it. You can't erase it. You can't hide from it. You can't be vaccinated against it. But there's a father who's going to protect you from it. There's a father who's going to say no more. No more physical pain, no more emotional pain, no more heartache, 
no more pain. John says, all that, all that pain, all that suffering, all those tears, all the heartache, all the screams of agony and injustice, all that is the old order of things. That was the old way of life. That was the old earth, the old world system. There's a father who comes and he really does wipe away every tear. He really does say no more death, no more suffering, no more regret, no more pain, no more. And as dads, our job is to make it easy for our children to believe that there's a God in heaven who can deliver everything that we wish we could. Because there is. He really can. See, a dad's job is simply to make it easy to believe. God, he comes and he reverses the effects of sin, and he at the same time provides the cure. And it's forever. You never need a booster for this one. It's forever. Don't you see this is the great reversal. Death is turned to life, sorrow into song, tears into thanksgiving, hope, hurt into happiness, pain into praise. And how long will it last? Forever. Forever. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And he says, it's done. The party never ends. The celebrations never stop. The singing, it never gets old. The feasting never ends. It's together. And there's no more empty seats around the table. There's no more goodbyes in heaven. We're never just left with a memory anymore. It's forever. That's where Christmas is going. It's going to a place of celebrating and singing and feasting forever. Because we're together forever. That's where Christmas is going. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for what you are preparing for us. And God, in the, in the here and now, as we wait in joyful anticipation and at the same time in pure devotion, may we wait well, inviting others to this place of forever. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.